Um, you know, one of the things that I've learned over the years is that there are three types, three very distinct types of, uh, of dangerous Christians. Um, and, you know, how many of you guys have heard the joke, uh, there are three types of people, uh, people who are good at math and people who aren't? Right? You guys have heard that one maybe, but no, all serious, uh, in all seriousness, uh, I'm not going to say there are, there are three types of Christians, those who are good at math and, and those who aren't. No, all joking aside, um, this is a really, really serious issue. Uh, the first type of dangerous Christian is one that you guys are probably aware of. It's, it's the legalist. And a legalist, uh, if I were to define it as simply and uh, as, as fully as I could, I'd say it's somebody who takes areas of conviction, personal conviction, between them and the Holy Spirit, and they apply those same convictions, they impose those same convictions on others. And you know, that, that can look like a million different things, but think about it this way. If there's a gray area in which there is some degree of liberty, uh, the legalist is the type of person who will take that gray area in somebody else's life, but not gray area for them, and they'll make it black or white for that other person. Uh, traditional examples of, of gray area uh, would be things like tattoos, um, listening to secular music. You know, you don't want people listening to rock music, or you know, you got to keep it on Spirit 105.3 as long as they're, you know, yeah. Uh, maybe wearing the right things to church, uh, maybe even moderate. I, I want to stress moderate, uh, consumption of alcohol. Um, you know, this type of Christian, the legalist, is dangerous because they don't allow others to walk in grace and by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Instead, what the legalist really does, because they're taking their own personal convictions and, and imposing it on others, what they're really doing is taking the job of the Holy Spirit on themselves. The Holy Spirit isn't going to convict you, so I will. So that, that's the attitude of, of the legalist, and that's a dangerous dangerous type of Christian. The second type of dangerous Christian is the licentious Christian. Um, this is the type of Christian who abuses God's grace. See, every, They see everything as, as gray area. They're, they're, it's not black and white. It's all just gray for them. There's, there are no boundaries because even if we sin, hey, you know, it's covered by grace. So, uh, you know, if, if where God's grace is, if, if God's grace is found where there's sin, then let's sin even more so there's more grace. No, that's the licentious Christian. They're, they're abusing God's grace. They're ultimately taking uh, God's grace as a license to sin. God's uh, grace is not a license to sin. And this type of Christian is dangerous because they can very, very easily lead younger Christians, people who are newer to the faith, people who are vulnerable in their walk with the Lord because they just haven't, they just haven't matured to, to a certain point where they know what the Holy Spirit is telling them to do and what not to do. They, they see this person walking in sin and saying, hey, you know, let's go ahead and sin. God's going to forgive us anyway. And so that person uh, ends up stumbling too. So the licentious person becomes a stumbling block for younger and vulnerable, uh, weaker Christians. Uh, the third type of uh, dangerous Christian is similar to the type of people, similar to the type of people that we're going to be looking at today. And these are people who know exactly what the Bible says, but they are too prideful to allow it to penetrate their heart and transform their life. This is a dangerous, dangerous type of person. These types of people love to impress others with their knowledge uh, of the stories of the Bible. or may Maybe they can even recite huge passages of, uh, of the, of the uh, scriptures for you. But if discipleship is all about becoming about Jesus, and it is, that's what discipleship is all about, becoming more like Jesus, 
uh, then it might be difficult to see the fruit or the, the results of discipleship playing out in their lives. And oftentimes, you know, these are the type of people who are so immensely prideful. They love to impress other people. And personally, I am just rarely impressed by people who are so full of themselves. They're like a cup that's flowing over with themselves, and they want every other cup around them to be full of themselves too. It's like that's what they're trying to do. And that's what we're going to see today when we take a look at the Pharisees. You know, these are people, the Pharisees, that they were teachers of the law. You know, they, they knew exactly what the Scripture said. In fact, I have no doubt that they could recite word for word more of Scripture uh, than I could ever even dream of because that's what their lives were devoted to. And these are the type of people, they're kind of a combination of that first type of, of dangerous Christian that I was talking about, the legalist, and this third type who knows the Bible, but they've overlooked the life-transforming principles of the Bible. See, it's one thing to know the Word, it's another thing to understand it. So they, they don't really understand it. They know it, but they don't understand it. And I'd say that the Pharisees are similar. Remember, I said that they're similar um, to this type of person because the Pharisees were not followers of Jesus. Uh, they didn't recognize him for who he was, and so they, they didn't follow him. Uh, maybe a, a couple of them, at least a couple of them, would go on to eventually convert at some point down the road. Uh, Paul, for example, was, was a Pharisee, former Pharisee, but the vast majority of them wanted absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. Now, let's take a brief look at the context that's led us to this point. Um, Jesus has been giving the disciples a lesson in greatness, right? That's, that's what the whole passage leading up to this point has been all about. Specifically, he's told them, because they were having this argument about which one of them was the greatest, and so he said, okay, I understand that you guys want to be great, and I'm not going to discourage you from being great, but here's what we're going to do. I'm going to define greatness for you, because it's different than what you think. Greatness, in God's eyes, is not power, influence, intimidation, uh, prestige, all the, these types of things. In my kingdom, greatness is defined by who is willing to be the least. And that's the type of humility that's necessary for judging ourselves, judging the sin that's in our lives, and, and ridding our, uh, our lives of sin. Uh, and it's necessary for serving others, the same type of humility. And as Jesus has told us, it's necessary. This humility is necessary for being great in God's eyes. And of course, this is entirely opposed to the world's definition of greatness. And you know, one of the things that Mark has done on, on numerous occasions, if you've, if you've been going through this, uh, this study with us, we've seen it so many times, what he'll do is he'll paint this contrasting picture where you know, it's, it's one way in one scene and then he flips it around and this is what it looks like in the other scene. Right? And, and so we get a contrasting picture, and that's what we're going to see today as well. Today we're going to see a stark contrast from the picture of godly greatness that Jesus has laid out for us in the previous passage. This is, this is a contrast. See, these Pharisees are great in the eyes of the world because they've got all those things. They've got power. They've got prestige. They, they intimidate people. Um, they, they have social influence. And as we've seen throughout the book of Mark, they've kind of been sporadically harassing Jesus whenever they've got a chance to. If they, if they know where Jesus is ministering, man, they are on the scene, and they're going to bring Jesus' ministry to a grinding halt. That's, that's their plan, is to bring Jesus' ministry to a grinding halt, which, by the way, looking back over over our previous passage is exactly what the disciples were trying to do 
with this other man who was casting out demons in Jesus' name, a guy who remains anonymous. We don't know who he is. The disciples didn't know who he was either. And so they tried to do the same thing with that guy's ministry that the Pharisees have tried to do with Jesus' ministry. And the Pharisees have apparently received word that Jesus is out ministering again. And so they're, gonna, uh, they're going to seek him out. And so we pick it up in Mark chapter 10. Let's start with verses 1 and 2. Getting up, he, Jesus, went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Now, contextually, comparing this with other, uh, with Luke and, and Matthew, for example, um, you know, we, we know that this is the last trip that Jesus is going to make out of Galilee, and he won't be back to Galilee before he goes to Jerusalem. And of course, we all know what happens in Jerusalem. He goes to the cross. And it's on this trip that Luke tells us about uh, how Jesus sends the 70 out in pairs, similar to what he had done in our, in our study of Mark with the 12. He had sent out 12 before. This time on this trip, he sends out 70. Well, Mark doesn't go into detail about that, but Luke does, and it's, it's uh, happening on this trip. Uh, so Mark uses the first verse simply to summarize a pretty big journey that Jesus and the disciples are taking into the northern region of Judea. And Mark tells us that Jesus' intention was the usual. Jesus always wanted to teach. And sometimes he would, he would use miracles uh, to get people's attention or to give himself credibility in the eyes of the people because he saw that they were uh, legitimately seeking. And so he would do miracles. And his, his goal was ultimately always to teach. That was his custom. So that's his normal thing. He wants to go out and teach people. But in the midst of this uh, episode of teaching, the, the midst of this scene of teaching, he's interrupted by these Pharisees who show up on the scene and they begin quizzing Jesus right in front of everybody, right in the middle of his teaching. You know, and you know, it, it, it takes some serious boldness, um, if not just rudeness and audacity, to interrupt anyone uh, in the middle of teaching, but that's how full of themselves these guys are. They're like cups that are overflowing with themselves, but their hearts are in a very very dark and dangerous place, needless to say. Now, the Greek word that gets uh, translated as, as testing or, or quizzing here indicates a malicious intent. So they're not just asking him, you know, because they don't know. No, they're, they're trying to trap Jesus. They've got this malicious intent, which, of course, is, is no real surprise. They've been trying to do that since the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But they're out here in an attempt to discredit Jesus right in front of everyone. And so what do they do? They pick a topic that's going to be emotionally charged. Divorce. That's the topic that they choose to test Jesus on. We don't know why they picked this one per se. Um, you know, maybe there are people who are there and the Pharisees knew that they were there. People who had been divorced maybe multiple times or uh, people who were getting ready to go through divorce and they knew that you know, if, if we throw this question out there, man, some people are going to start leaving. You know, we don't know. Um, maybe it's just because this is a really tricky and extremely sticky subject, um, not whether it's other, ever um, biblically valid to get a divorce, but the grounds for divorce. That's really what the issue is that they bring up. What are the grounds for divorce? Now, contextually in, in history, uh, it's important that we, that we understand first century 
context. Um, there were two primary views on divorce in ancient Israel at this time. The first is based on Deuteronomy chapter 24, where Moses instructs a man that he can divorce his wife if he finds any impurity or indecency in her. And that's in the first couple verses of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24. So this first group believed that this meant that any type of dissatisfaction at all, at all, was grounds for divorce. And this, this view was uh, promoted by some very prominent rabbis. In fact, this was probably the most prominent view in Israel in the first century. So, um, you know, maybe their dissatisfaction was with the way uh, his wife cooked, or maybe it was with the way that she constantly chewed on her fingernails. Uh, maybe it was that she started to get a wrinkle from all the smiling that she was doing. Uh, maybe she just walked funny. Maybe her hair was, uh, you know, the wrong color. You know, who knows? It could be anything. If the husband had any, any sense of dissatisfaction with his wife, in their opinion, it was grounds for divorce, any type of dissatisfaction at all. That's the first group. The second group was led by another prominent Hebrew uh, rabbi who insisted that there were only a very few, very specific uh, instances or, or circumstances under which divorce was permissible, things like adultery, for example. So obviously, the Pharisees aren't bringing this up because they don't know one way or the other what the Scriptures taught. They know exactly what the Scriptures say. And so they bring it up to see, A, if Jesus knows the Scriptures as thoroughly as they do. I think that's part of it. But B, also, to find out which camp Jesus falls into, and of course, C, to, uh, to stir up the pot, to, to make people emotionally charged and to get people out of there and to discredit Jesus. And of course, they think that they're trapping Jesus. That's what they think. Because if he supports divorce, then he upholds the interpretation of the Pharisees. And he's on the Pharisees' side, in which case he aligns himself with them. And the people are going to see Jesus as agreeing with the Pharisees. And if he stands against divorce, someone who's listening to Jesus as he's teaching might decide, hey man, it's time to hit the road because he's contradicting what Moses said. And they, take, they have a very high view of Scripture. They take the words of Moses really, really, really seriously. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's one or the other. Are they going to discredit Jesus because he's standing with the Pharisees, or are they going to discredit Jesus because he opposes Moses? Wow, tough situation. Um, and it's as tough, as, as tricky, and as sticky of a situation for them as it is for us today. Uh, believe me, a lot of prayer and preparation went into this because this is something that gets people fired up. And I, I realize that, and they realize that. That's why this is an issue. I mean, you want to start up a firestorm of a discussion, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, something that people are, are fired up about. Yeah, talk about divorce. Bring that up. Bring, bring up a, a view that most people might not agree with. And yeah, people are, people who, who haven't even been divorced are going to have emotionally charged responses. And so this is just one of those topics that will stir the pot. Now, Jesus knows that they know what the Bible says. He, he knows who these guys are and what they know. But in answering it, he's going to demonstrate that the question isn't about divorce. Their question isn't about divorce. He knows it. It's about the hardness of their own hearts. And so there are going to be two steps that Jesus takes to answering this question. First, he's going to reinterpret uh, the instructions of Moses for them. And then he's going to take them all the way back to the beginning of creation and show them, hey, this is not what God intended. So let's see what Jesus says about what Moses taught on the subject of divorce. Verses 3 to 5. <clears throat> and he, Jesus, answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? 
They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. I love how Jesus does this. He can always turn the tables on people. People, you know, These guys have tried to trap him before, and he always turns it around so that the other person is the one that looks like the idiot. Um, and so he turns this discussion from being about the grounds for divorce to the reason that this provision for divorce was given in the first place. He doesn't give them a direct answer. You notice that? He's not giving them a, a, an A or B answer. He's giving them a different answer than they had foreseen. This question is a little bit like asking somebody, hey, are, are you still beating your kids? Um, you know, it, that's a trap of a question because if they say yes, oh, you're a bad guy, you're beating your kids. And if you say no, oh, well, you used to beat your kids. So it's, it's a trap of a question. It's, it's kind of similar to that. But Jesus turns it right around so the spotlight is right on the Pharisees, which by the way, is usually where they like it to be anyway, right? So he, he's, he's giving them, uh, putting them right on stage. And so as soon as they proudly recite uh, the conditions or the provision that Moses laid out under which a man could, uh, could divorce his wife, Jesus reveals the motive for that being given, the motive that Moses had for permitting divorce. It wasn't that Moses was encouraging divorce, and it wasn't necessarily something that Moses wanted to put his stamp of approval on. It's, it's not like that at all. But he knew that it was going to happen, and he knew that in that culture, in, in, in that type of situation, women were going to suffer greatly, greatly. They'd be kind of dehumanized, in a sense. So the instructions were thus given in an attempt to preserve human dignity of women. That's really what it's all about. And we need to remember, by the way, that the purpose of the law is never ever to accommodate sin. It's never to accommodate sin. The purpose of the law is to reveal the dark and sinful corners of our hearts. And this law, this provision, was no different. We read in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, if your conscience doesn't get you, the law will. The law will tell you, hey man, your, your conscience is off. Because this is wrong. So any t anything in the law of Moses is there to point out an individual's sin. It's not about accommodating sin. This law never was meant to accommodate or make room for sin in people's lives. And thus the reason that this provision was made is the same reason that this question about divorce has been raised by the Pharisees. It's because of people's, in this case the Pharisees, hardness of heart. But notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say it was because of their hard-heartedness. He doesn't say it was because of our hard-heartedness. He says it's because of your hardness of heart. Not theirs. He's not just clumping these group of people like they're extinct. He's saying you are like those people for whom this provision was made. See, without hardened hearts, a provision for divorce never would have even been necessary in the first place, right? So what does it mean to be hard-hearted? Well, to, to define hard-heartedness, I think it's best to create kind of a contrast. Uh, the opposite of being hard-hearted would be somebody who is uh, gentle, kind, and soft in spirit. But, uh, you know, if a, if a person doesn't typically demonstrate these types of characteristics, they're probably closer, at least, to being hard-hearted than they should be, or they are completely over in that direction. 
so the concept of a hardened heart is actually a concept that we find throughout Scripture, starting with, with the beginning of, of the Bible. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 17, for example, we read that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. <clears throat> In fact, what we see is the same thing over and over and over. If you do a study on, on how Pharaoh responded out of his hard-heartedness, every time his heart was hardened, he doesn't listen. He's just... He's, he's got his own idea about how things are going to be done. He doesn't listen to what anybody else says, no matter how desperate those pleas might be. And so it's reasonable to conclude from this that someone who is hardened in their heart doesn't listen to others, and they don't seek counsel. You know, not one time did Pharaoh go to someone and say, hey, you know, these guys are asking if they can be released. What do you guys think? Give me some wisdom here, guys. He never does that. He just, he's got it all figured out himself. So I'd say that there is a direct correlation between how egotistical or narcissistic a person is and the degree to which they are hard-hearted. The more egotistical you are, the more hard-hearted you tend to be. So of course they don't listen to others because somebody who's hard-hearted already has everything figured out. Why, why would they listen to people who are inferior to them? Right? They've got it all figured out themselves, at least in their own minds. Now, there was a king named Zedekiah in Second Chronicles who also experienced hard-heartedness. In Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 11 to 13, we read, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear allegiance by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart. There it is, hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. So from this, we can kind of gather that uh, somebody who's hard-hearted refuses to be, to be humble. They want nothing to do with it, but you know, we, we'd expect that because a rejection of humility is one of the chief characteristics of somebody who's egotistical or narcissistic. So someone who is hard-hearted is someone who insists on doing things their own way, refusing to do things God's way, and so they're, they're doing things their way in accordance with the desires and the natural tendencies, the natural inclinations of the flesh. It's assuming the attitude of just outright refusal to let anybody else influence you, including God. So God doesn't get real ownership of their life. He can't guide them or direct them. He can't give them wisdom because they are hard-hearted. They have shut him out uh, in accordance with the natural tendencies of their hearts. Ray Steadman said this. He's one of my favorite guys to quote in case you guys haven't noticed. Ray Steadman was uh, Chuck Swindoll's pastor when Chuck Swindoll became a Christian. Uh, Ray Steadman says this, when you determine that you are going to handle something yourself and not pay any attention to what God reveals about it, you are hardening your heart. And I'd say that this describes the Pharisees perfectly. You know, These are guys who, who say all the right things. They, they've, they've given the right answer, right? They, they say all the right things. They know the Bible, but you know what? It's, it's all just empty words. It's all just lip service. The Pharisees are cut from the same cloth as the people to whom God said in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. So what we see in this verse right here is that there are three characteristics of somebody who's hard-hearted. 
they give lip service to God rather than really opening their hearts up to God, and they remove their hearts from God, and their worship is stale and rooted in nothing more than memory and tradition. You know, long before I became a Christian, I was able to recite the Lord's Prayer, um, and it got to the point where, man, I, I, it's like recite, I may as well sing Mary Had a Little Lamb. That was how meaningful it was to me. It was just lip service. It was coming out of rote memory and tradition. And if you're familiar with, uh, with liturgy, there's a tendency for it to be very dry, very unemotional. Uh, you know, after a while, it becomes just words and, and nothing more than just words. And it's something that you're, you know, you're just saying from memory rather than being something that flows from a heart that is just desperate to worship Jesus. You see, worship is supposed to be it's supposed to be an emotional experience because worship is experiencing a deep, deep intimacy with God. That is what worship is all about, experiencing this deep intimacy with God. There are incredible emotions in any relationally intimate situations that we are in. That's the way that God designed us, to experience intimacy with him and with others and for that intimacy to be magnified by emotions. It's like drilling it in even further with the emotions. When there's no emotion in your intimacy with God, something is seriously wrong, just like there's something seriously wrong when a husband and wife are intimate with one another and one or the other or both don't feel any emotion about it. It's a sign that something is deeply, deeply wrong. And when worship looks like that, when there's no emotion involved, when there's no real pouring out of the heart, it is no longer worship. So back to what Jesus has said about Moses' teaching on divorce. Uh, Moses had said that if a husband found something unclean about his wife, he could write a certificate of divorce and sayonara. And, you know, by, by doing that, <clears throat> the husband may have thought, uh, you know, he was asserting his power as a man. You know, he was doing the manly thing. You know, I'm not going to stand up for any type of uh, anything that I, that, I don't, um, that I don't like to put up with. Uh, or maybe he thought that he was just going to make this woman's life really difficult because being accountable to him made his life really difficult. Oh, yeah, well, we'll see what happens when I send you out of here. Maybe it was about that. But really, really, what was revealed when a husband divorced his wife was the hard-heartedness of the husband because he's treating another human being with contempt and hatred, treating them as inferior to himself. That's, that's the real message of divorce. And it's completely opposite the type of humility that Jesus has just instructed the disciples about. So if a husband finds some type of um, dissatisfaction or uncleanness in his wife, what should he do? I'm glad you asked. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. There's a picture of being one flesh. If you love them, you love yourself. If you don't love them, you don't love yourself. So let's say that you hate your nose. What are you going to do? <laughs> Cut it off? I mean, I, mean, I, I guess with, with plastic surgery these days, that, that's an option. Uh, so some people would say, of course that's what I'd do if I hated my nose. But let's say that it's something as unchangeable as uh, you know, the color of your own flesh. You know, you, you look at your hand and you're like, oh man, I, I hate that color. Why do I have to be that color? You know, it's the same principle here that we find in marriage. If you don't like the color of your own skin, what you need to do is you need to figure out what's wrong with you. 
You need to figure out what's going on in your head and in your heart that's causing you to feel like you need to deal with it by, by cutting it off because you can't change the color of your own skin. Unless you're Michael Jackson. So, you know, we'll put an asterisk there. You can't change the color of your own skin. So the same principle holds true here with marriage. If you find something about the other person that you don't like, that absolutely drives you nuts, instead of looking at them as the problem, you need to look at yourself and figure out what's going on with you and what's causing you to feel hard-hearted. What's causing you to feel so much animosity or annoyance with the other person? You see, the humble person, the soft-spirited person who is reliant on God for wisdom and understanding, they recognize their own inability to function in a situation apart from God and his teachings, his guidance. And so they're obedient to God. They're willing to do things his way, no matter what the cost might be, no matter how difficult it might seem. And trust me, sometimes when you do things God's way, there will be consequences. There will be things that you don't like. There will be personal costs. And some, you know, sometimes the costs of doing things the right way, God's way, uh, are incredibly steep, including up to and including martyrdom, being killed for doing things God's way. Now, if a person has this type of gentleness of, of heart and spirit, divorce would never have even been necessary. This provision for divorce wouldn't have even been in there. It wouldn't have even been an issue, but Jesus tells us that the provision for divorce was given because of hard-hearted people. Now, I understand that there are times and circumstances and situations when divorce is possibly a legitimate option. The point, however, is that divorce is a symptom of human brokenness. If both husband and wife are humble, gentle in spirit, fully committed to doing things God's way, man, divorce is, is never even an issue. It's never brought up. They, they go into marriage saying divorce will never be an option no matter what. No matter what. The further one of the parties or both of the parties move away from this type of gentle-spirited godliness, the closer they move to hard-heartedness, and the closer they move to seeing divorce as a real option. Now, this alone is a sufficient response, in my opinion, that Jesus has given the Pharisees. Man, he's, he's, he's really put them in their place there, but he's not done. What Jesus has done is show us why marriages fail, hard-heartedness. But now he's going to give us the cure. He's going to tell us what the key to making a marriage succeed is. And so we continue in Mark chapter 10, verses 6 to 9. Jesus continues saying, But... From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, if you've ever been to a wedding, you've, you've probably heard those words, right? Everybody's heard those at, at, at weddings. Unfortunately, for a lot of couples, that's the last time they even let those, those words enter their minds. Uh, it's not even contemplated again after the ceremony for a lot of people, unfortunately. Uh, but what Jesus has done here is he's taken them back before Moses, before Jacob, before Abraham, all the way back to the beginning of creation. And in the same breath, he stayed in the writings of Moses, right? Moses wrote Deuteronomy. He also wrote Genesis. In fact, uh, they're all originally from the same book. 
So he's, he's stayed within uh, the words of Moses. What a, what a wise, wise move. But as part of this response, Jesus points out three things. Number one, he points out the actions of God. He created them male and female. That was God's actions. Secondly, he, desire, he, he gives us the desire of God. And that is that a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. And finally, he offers God's warning. Therefore, what God has put together, let no person separate. And by the way, I say person. I know that the verse says man, but the Greek word there is anthropos, which refers to a person in general. The same word that we get anthropology from, the study of humans. So he's talking about people in general. Let no people separate what God has joined together. You see, Prior to the fall, prior to Adam and Eve falling into sin in the Garden of Eden, God's intention and his design for marriage was fully revealed. God intentionally designed man, and he intentionally designed woman. And they were designed perfectly to complement each other. And by the way, I'm talking about complement with an E, uh, not with an I. With an E, it means they fit together. But uh, you know, it doesn't do any harm, husbands or, or wives, for you to give compliments with an I either. Uh, so that the command uh, to become one flesh indicated the type of intimacy and inseparability, indissolvability that a husband and wife were designed by God originally to have with one another. The wife belongs to the husband as much as he belongs to himself, and, and vice versa. And that's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This is God's design for marriage. If you want to take your marriage from barely surviving to thriving, the journey begins with a recognition that God designed a man and wife to belong to one another. It means your hearts. It means everything. Your, your, your eyes. It means your minds. And if it's minds, it means that there can't be any secrets. There's, there's no place for secrets in a marriage because as soon as secrets start to creep in, the spirit of being one flesh immediately starts being ripped apart. It's the spiritual and emotional equivalent of having multiple personalities according to what Paul's written here. You know, Jesus has recognized the provision for divorce that was made by Moses, but he wants to make clear that that's not what God's original design for marriage looked like. And you know what type of person would have missed that completely? You know what type of person would have said, oh, look what Moses did. He put this provision for divorce in here, therefore divorce is allowed. Rather than going back and seeing what God said about it originally, you know what type of person is going to miss that? Somebody who's hard-hearted. Somebody who's selfish and looking for a provision, looking for an excuse to be selfish. A hardened heart will render a person spiritually blind to God's purposes every single time. And that's why the Pharisees brought this question up to begin with. See, this passage is not about divorce as much as it's about the power of a hardened heart. Yeah, divorce is the question that they bring up. Divorce is just the symptom Jesus is addressing the disease. The disease is a hardened heart. Their casual attitude about divorce was a symptom of something that was much deeper and something that was a much more important issue. I mean, having biblical knowledge is, is great, but if it's nothing beyond information, 
knowing things by rote memory, if it hasn't resulted in transformation, it's nothing but lip service. Information without transformation is absolutely worthless as the Pharisees have demonstrated perfectly well in our passage today. Having the information is great, but if there's no transformation, man, you're still falling short. Information without transformation leads to spiritual stagnation. We could throw education in there. Education that leads to information without transformation leads to stagnation. And man, that is a dark, dark, and dangerous place to be. Dangerous place to be. See, now the disciples, uh, they've overheard all this. Uh, and, and their hearts are, are, are getting right. They're, they're starting to kind of get it. But at this point, they've still got a lot of questions about what Jesus was, going to, was trying to say. And so they have some unresolved uh, issues with what he had said. So they're going to ask him some questions. And so we continue by reading in verses 10, and tw- uh, 10 to 12. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Now, first of all, I, I want to make sure that we see exactly what Jesus has done here. This is very uh, contrary to first century Israel. He knew that in first century Israel, women were viewed as inferior to men. I'm not saying that's right. Nobody's saying that's right. Jesus certainly isn't saying that's right. But that's the way it was. Women were viewed as inferior to men in this culture. And the Pharisees had viewed women the exact same way. And in fact, the Jewish view overall was that only a man had the right to issue a certificate of divorce. Only a man can initiate a divorce. But what Jesus has done here is he has leveled the playing field making them equal with one another. You see that? Just like it's logically impossible for a person to be greater than themselves, you know, I, I can't get up here and say, boy, I'm, I'm feeling better than I am today, or I'm, I'm a lot better than I am, smarter than I am. Just like that's logically impossible, it's also logically impossible for a husband to be greater than his wife. They are equal in the eyes of God. A wife can initiate a divorce just like a man can, according to what Jesus has taught right here. Yeah, people love to attack the Bible and say, oh, it's sexist. Look at this. That's not sexist. In fact, that's so counterculture, we'd say it's revolutionary. So, see, marriage isn't about happiness as much as it's about holiness. And that's a really important concept for us to wrap our minds around. That it's more about holiness than it is about happiness. And if it's resulting in, ha- uh, in holiness, it will result in happiness. But don't put the cart before the horse. It's about holiness first, happiness second. It's about learning to submit to somebody else. And God uses this accountability that a husband and wife have with one another. He puts two sinners together, makes them accountable to each other, and says, this is designed to make you like me. So it's about submitting to each other. And you know, it's about learning to get through uh, you know, the, the difficulties, the accountability, the conflicts that a husband and wife has as they learn to submit to one another and going through incredibly difficult trials together. And God will use those types of situations to unite a husband and wife. And he uses all those things to make us more like himself. It's something that takes a long time. It takes 
some real dedication. It's never easy being molded like clay in the potter's hand. It's never easy. It requires brokenness at some point. But that's the purpose of marriage. And that's how God works in a marriage to make us more and more like himself. And this is also why sex is so sacred. Sex is sacred. It's the deepest level of intimacy. And you know, why would you ever want to be with someone? Why would you ever want to experience that level of intimacy with someone who isn't committed to you before God and all people? Why? Sex is also a visual image of a man and wife becoming one flesh. That's why sex is sacred. It's a picture of that. Now, there are two points that I want to close with very briefly. Um, The first is that I want us to understand that while adultery is grounds for divorce, it doesn't mean you have to get a divorce if there's adultery. In fact, adultery is something, if, if you look at it as something that happens in the heart, you know, it's, it's going to be in every marriage to some extent. But if, let's say it happens physically. That doesn't mean that you have to get a divorce. You know, I've been really close to some people uh, in seminary who had an adulterous affair almost destroy their marriage. Only for the two people to reconcile and find greater love, greater happiness, greater intimacy with one another on the other side. It took some serious dedication. But they made it. And they were closer because of it. And I'm not saying that it's an easy issue for people to get through. Man, I understand that hurts. You know, I understand. But it can be done if both people are committed to dealing with it openly and honestly. Listen, I guarantee that any situation that, that involves conflict with another person, if you and your spouse or this other person invite God into the middle of that conflict, I guarantee there will be healing if you're both willing to fully submit to God's way of doing things. He's always looking for reconciliation. Secondly, I want us to, to make sure that we understand that divorce is always, unfortunately, it's, it's always uh, a violation of God's plan for marriage, even in cases of adultery. That's not how God intended it. It's still not how God intended it. I don't, and I don't want you to think that I'm, I'm here to condemn anyone or everyone who's gone through a divorce. I'm, I'm not condemning anyone. We've all fallen short. Uh, you know, I, I don't judge or condemn what someone has done in their past. What matters is where they are right now. You know, if, if you've been through a divorce, I, I don't judge you. I, I don't condemn you at all. But where are you right now? How would you handle the same situation right now? Did God teach you anything about yourself or about resolution you know, as a result of a divorce, where are you right now? You know, we, we've all fallen short, and God's grace is always greater than our faults and failures. There's always God's grace, of course. Nevertheless, divorce is never in God's will. Never. God's desire. Throughout the Bible, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 21, God's desire is always, always, always Reconciliation. And that's why he sent Jesus. Reconciliation. To reconcile God and humanity. And he's always willing to forgive the person who's willing to come to him humbly, confess, and repent. And if God can forgive us for the sins that we've committed against him, there's no sin that anybody has committed against us that we are not capable of forgiving. Because our sins against God are greater than any sin somebody's caused against us. See, a humble spirit is going to find peace with God. But they're not just going to find peace with God. 
they're going to find peace with others as well. And that's why in God's eyes, those who in their minds are the greatest, at least in their minds, they're hard-hearted, they might seem like the greatest in the world's eyes, but in God's eyes, the greatest are the least. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you do all things good. And we thank you that you are a God who desires reconciliation because if you were not, we would be lost in our sin. We would be separated from you for all of eternity. And so we thank you, God, that reconciliation is always your desire. And we thank you, Lord, that your grace makes reconciliation with you possible. I pray, God, that we would be a people of grace, people who are willing to open our hearts up to you, people who refuse even the the slightest bit of hard-heartedness, that when we see it coming in, we run from it. God, I pray that you would shape us and mold us as humble people, soft, gentle people who reflect your grace and your mercy and obedience to you, no matter what the personal cost might be in all that we do. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.